In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, um, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books. The book of the week... Uh, for this week that I'll talk about on next week's show Monday is Period by Kate Clancy. Period, The Real Story of Menstruation. Uh, I saw this book posted a few months ago that I was coming out. I think it just came out this past week. Um, a scientific look at menstruation, something that we have a hard time where it's taboo to talk about, which I always try to talk about taboo topics on the show because... When topics are taboo, people somehow get hurt by remaining or keeping the topic in the dark. So uh, I look forward to reading that book and sharing it with you on Monday. The book of the week that I'll be talking about today is Sodom and Gomorrah by Marcel Proust. This is volume four of seven from his great work In Search of Lost Time. And... I've read, this is the fourth one, so I've read them over a period of time. The last one I read more recently. And, you know, when I read fiction and I talk about it on the show, I don't think it makes sense to get too much into the um, the plot and what happens. And really, when you read a book like this, my experience of it so far is that the plot is not really so significant in that there's not a lot of things happening, but in a way there's a lot happening in the sense that the way that Proust writes is that he goes so deep into what might seem like a small interaction, but going into the intricacies of what both people are thinking and feeling and the, the hidden messages and meanings and what's driving them in ways that's really fascinating. So um, I think I mentioned in one of the past books and also in this book, he'll spend 100 pages at like a dinner party, basically like a mehmuni. 100 pages of talking about who said what to whom and what ways. And so when you think 100 pages at one dinner party, you'd imagine a lot happens. But again, there's not big events going on. It's mostly the conversations and um, the ways people are interacting and the different social dynamics at play. And in this book, uh, as in the previous ones, looking at the social life in Paris and um, who was more popular, the ways that people we're vying for different types of pop popularity or playing things the right way, which makes every conversation have many more layers to it than just what is being said. In this book, as the title would imply Sodom and Gomorrah, he talks a lot about homosexuality. It comes up in previous books as well, but in this one, it's a big focus of it. And Marcel Proust himself was known to be a homosexual, but he was open, they say, with some people, but really was hidden and didn't want it to be known. And so um, knowing that and reading this book was interesting for me. Of course, this book was written over 
uh, over 120 years ago or so, or 110 years ago, something like that, more than 100 years ago. And so times and society was very different then. Even still, we know that people um, may feel more safe, comfortable to remain in the closet or to not share their sexual identity um, or their sexuality because of how they might be treated. And in some countries, it's still not safe, even legally. Um, but even more so, 100 years ago, it was harder or more difficult to express that. And so uh, in the book, in the beginning, he talks about homosexuality in a, a fairly negative way. There's a first he encounters two people having a uh, casual hookup um, and they don't s suspect him seeing or they don't know he's watching them, two men. And then he goes on to talk about homosexuality for many pages giving some type of commentary on it. And it was, as I said, quite negative. And from my reading of it, knowing that he himself was a homosexual and is not writing about it, but of course, trying to hide that he himself is, that could impact how one might describe it. And we see this often where um, people might disparage or talk negatively about some group of people, some characteristic in people, and often it's something that they might experience in themselves, consciously or unconsciously, that they are disliking in others. Even sometimes we find that people who are strongly homophobic, there could be a um, issue with the homosexuality they might have within themselves that they are projecting outwards and, and being so negative towards because they can't accept it within themselves. So here it's more layered than that because, of course, he's writing and he knew that it was uh, risky to write about something like this, but he wanted to write about it. And so it can make sense that he might have been even more negative, but it also was likely reflecting the norms of that time. Also throughout the, the book, themes of sexual jealousy, romantic jealousy come up as they have in, in previous books with, with a lot of depth and even actually... Um, reading some people's analysis of the books uh, he has this love interest albertine and some people say maybe it was actually albert and so um, the narrator in the book we never hear his name which is interesting so he'll have people talk to him or they will address him the narrator of these seven volumes but we never hear his name and many people assume that it was him himself marcel proust as his life followed a similar trajectory or had parallels to what we see the narrator experience in the book. But some people think that he at times might show himself in a heterosexual relationship, but it maybe was his way of covering what was his own homosexuality and changing names like Gilbert or Albertine. We can get to Albert possibly as someone that he actually knew and had a relationship with that was a male. But, um, uh, you know, I also, most of the books I read on for the show are nonfiction books and I've talked about this before that I myself would think this way that nonfiction is where you learn things you know knowledge and information and that's what you should be um, reading and you know fiction is like stories and it's fun but really when you read great works of fiction like this one you see that that couldn't be further from the truth that uh, in fiction we learn so much about life in ways that we can't get from nonfiction. So it's not to say read one or the other, but I do think it's important to read both. 
And every time I do read a book of uh, fiction, it reminds me that I want to keep doing that and keep reading them. And especially getting to this fourth book, and there's only three more left, I probably will space it out a little bit because they tend to be longer. This one is about uh, like 515 pages, and the pages do take quite some time to get through. Uh, it probably will take a few more maybe months to get to the end, but I do have this anticipation to get to the end with also this bittersweet feeling of getting to the end of the book. And as I've already seen in the book and have seen people talk about it, it's a powerful reflection of, of course, as the title says, In Search of Lost Time, time and memory and experiences. And so getting to the end of it also brings this bittersweet feeling of the end of life, the end of um, a life experience. And I don't know if the book ends with the narrator's death or what part of his life he is in at the end, but I know that it, there's a lot of this bringing things together. So I have this desire to get to the end of the book, but also know it'll be a, a sad parting with it. And so I highly recommend it. It is, is a challenging book to get through um, because of its length. The seven volumes are well over 2,000 pages, um, so of course it'll take some time. But I really think it's it's worth that wait and that time. And that's something that I've also experienced reading this, that as I said, you, you will read parts of it that in a way you can say nothing happens, but so much happens. And it's a reminder of how we use our time and value our time, um, especially today, this book written over a hundred years ago. But now we look at time sometimes in a, well, what did I get done? Even how many things that I watch or shows that I read or even, you know, I do a book a week on the show. That's something to think about for myself. But how quickly we try to get through things and think that that's the mark of a good life or being productive or being good, probably related to some capitalistic type of mindsets that we carry. Um, but in this book, you see the value of taking things slow, of seeing when we slow down and pay attention to things, um, we see what really matters. And also, in the ways that we live our lives slowing down to recognize that those are usually uh, the ways that we experience things that really matter, not if we get through 10 conversations but having one meaningful, deep conversation, which will require us to slow down. So I think we see this in our social life, in our professional lives, in so many aspects of what we do, even what we do for leisure and enjoyment, that we're often thinking of how much or how many things we get through rather than slowing down and valuing the things that we we experience. Um, in the book also, he talks about grief in some beautiful ways, the, uh, grieving the loss of his grandmother, and also about how he didn't really process it when it happened. And so, so often throughout the book, and the books um, that I've read so far in this volume, I'm really shocked at these insights that Proust makes that are very much things that I thought, you know, in psychology, we've come up with some ideas or people have put these ideas forward, but he just in the middle of a paragraph, all of a sudden you see a very meaningful insight into the human experience that he made. And all great writers of literature have to be um, individuals who understand the human experience in a very powerful and deep way that can make these insights that bring to our awareness something that we probably experienced but had it ever seen put into words and can resonate with. And so he talks about missing his grandmother and he used to share a uh, 
hotel room basically that were parallel to each other next to each other and they would tap on the walls to each other to indicate certain things and he's in that room again and he recognizes that he can tap as long as he wants and she'll never come back again Um, and a very sad but poignant scene that points to how grief is something just like memories which he talks about Um, sometimes they're involuntary they just come to us Um, but they you know grief as well sometimes we'll be reminded of the one we miss in a certain way and we can't plan or prepare for it but there it is and the feelings come up and he shares how he hadn't really processed it and almost feels guilty about that that he didn't get as sad about it when it happened but here the feelings come to his awareness and, and he's um, experiencing them so many different themes in the book come up from as i mentioned jealousy homosexual love is, is a big theme throughout which to me again has this negative portrayal of it which i think relates his own issues of of his homosexuality but also what was the social norms and the the context of when the book was written but i do highly recommend it to anyone especially if you enjoy fiction Uh, enjoy literature this is an incredible work i'm really excited to get to the next volumes and to finish it um, to then experience the whole thing and reflect on it and and to learn more about it but uh highly recommend it and um in the first book one of these main themes something that a lot of people know even if they haven't read the books is the story of the madeleine or the madeleine i don't know if it's madeleine or madeleine cookie a french type of cookie that is sometimes had with tea or or coffee I was next door having coffee before the show and I was looking at what to get and actually got myself one of those cookies. So it's kind of a funny moment for myself um, to be reading and looking over the book while having a Madeline. But again, highly recommend the book. It's worth the time that you put in it. Um, This was the fourth volume of Seven, Sodom and Gomorrah of In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, thanks for calling. Yeah, thanks for the time that you gave to me. Sure. I'm so happy that uh, I have a chance to have a chat with you. Um, and my question, I've got a few questions uh, regarding my son, mm-hmm. who is 18 months old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm calling from Australia. Uh, I'm 37 myself, and my husband is 43, so he's our first baby. Mm. Uh, we listened to Dr. Holakui's series, uh, the first and the second part, me and my husband, and then we basically followed the main point, and everything has been absolutely fine with our baby. If he's sleeping is very good, he sleeps through the night, his eating is fine, so I never had any problem with that. His hygiene and showering, everything is good, he's happy and chill baby. The only thing that we're concerned about at the moment is that his strength anxiety, which I know is can be normal, is a bit high in compared to other babies around me. Sorry, so his his what anxiety? Pardon? I missed what you said. Did you say a type of anxiety or gender is? Stranger anxiety. Stranger anxiety. anxiety. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I know like a stranger anxiety is one of the main fear that a baby born with it. Mm-hmm. But with my baby, we think it's a bit higher than normal. No one can come very close to him. Even my friend who I see them like a once a week, 
So if someone tries to come a little bit close to him, he gets very panicked. He comes and speaks to me. So it, like, if someone play with him, like play peekaboo with him, or someone say, oh, like a singer song, he laughs, mm-hmm. enjoy. But as soon as the same person tries to approach him and come close to him or have a cuddle or touch him, he gets very panicked. And um, me and my husband, we are not sure what approaches we need to take to help him to reduce this feeling. Mm-hmm. Because as I said, uh, when I compare him with uh, the babies around me, my friend, I think this one's a little bit higher. Okay. Well, so the first thing, you know, we always want to remember that we do everything we can to help our kids and to help them to grow and develop in the best way. But we also know they are each individual's and so they have a temperament and certain things that is within them that we want to make sure we also respect and we don't expect them to be like the other kids because likely what you're describing is something internal that your son is a bit more anxious or a bit more anxious in this way. Could it be something that you guys have done makes him a little bit more? Maybe, but I would look at it first as just this is how he is. And the most important thing for me is that we don't make him feel bad about being this way because a lot of it is probably just he's just responding he doesn't know what's going on so overall i think this is just something important to keep in mind with especially when they're so young that we don't give any sense that how they're feeling is bad or wrong you know so i i'm sure your friends come up and you're like, oh you know you know him or you know her or something to try to show him that it's okay but we also want to make sure we don't give him any kind of message that although right now verbally he might not be able to internalize it, but that he's doing something wrong or bad or he shouldn't feel this way. Um, so that would be the the first thing. Now, you know, as you said, it is a natural and understandable anxiety or feeling that children have. And, and sometimes with babies, it shows up a little bit when they're closer to one years old because before that they can't really even recognize what's going on or it's hard for us to know what's going on for them. But to comprehend even there's something to be afraid of or to separate themselves from what's around them but it's it makes sense for them to have a sense of fear or anxiety of someone new and so that's why we don't want to make him feel bad but what i would encourage you to do is when he is feeling that way you just as you probably are doing just support him in being in that situation and even with your friends you can let them know he does have stranger anxiety so even though you've seen him many times, even though you've played with him, even though let's say right now you're playing with him from three feet away, just as being aware of how you approach him. And so not to make it about how I am with kids, but I really do, you know, kids and babies, I think they're just so wonderful and so uh, uh, such a wonderful thing to be around. And so when I see a friend's baby or if I'm around a baby, my initial reaction is to go hug them because they're, you know, they're so cute. But I generally like to just sit next to them for a while and almost let the child come to you in a way or let the baby feel comfortable around you before. So you can let them know that, you know, that's how he is. And we would expect that it's going to get less over time, which is why we don't want to push it or force him to get over it. But uh, I know I shared a lot already, but those are just some thoughts on how to approach it and to not make it something. Um, It could be also indicating to us, is he... Does he have more baseline anxiety? It's possible. And so we're observing him and trying to understand who he is as a person, and that could be part of his temperament. But really, as I said, 
in any way making him feel bad, making him feel bad for being this way is something I'd really want to make sure we don't do. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, all of my friend knows about okay. that. And no one tried to just come and tell him like mm-hmm. as soon as they come in. Every everyone understand and and we explain to them. Uh, yeah, my my question is that yeah, I, I know what you said, but do I need to take him outside with my friend more? Do I need to have more plans with them? Do I need to have less plans? Because mm, apart from this one, even he's the same with other kids and babies like for example if he's playing with a toy and then one of the babies like in his own age approach him and wants to grab that toy or play with the same toy he give up and he avoid and sometimes he run away mm-hmm. mm, i think he's getting a little bit better as i take him outside more but i can still see like if he's climbing up the like a slide and a baby come and wants to climb as well he tries to wait until he finished and then he goes and I was thinking oh maybe um, I, do I put him in this situation more do I put him less in those situations I'm not sure mm. Mm. yeah apart from what all you said sure. do I need to do more activities with him with other people or other kids or less well I, I wouldn't say less because I, I think um, even though we're seeing it makes him a little uncomfortable we don't want to make him extremely uncomfortable but we know that it's going to be good for him to experience this because this is what he'll have to experience in life. So I also wouldn't want you to think, okay, I have to get this out of him, so I have to keep exposing him to people because we could do too much. I would encourage you to do what you're doing. If you want to do it a little bit more, sure, but not think of it as something that I'm going to get this out of him. You know, if we keep taking him out, this is going to disappear because, as I said, it could be part of his temperament is a bit more anxious. So we recognize that and we want to, um, acknowledge that but then yes help him get more comfortable which doesn't mean the anxiety goes away or he's going to be let's say like another child um, or you know if you see a child that's very calm that your child will be just like that but yeah to expose him to those things that make him uncomfortable in a way that he can manage and also to support him through that you know so if you see he's stressed out you say oh you got scared the child was there or you kind of help him make sense of his feelings but showing him that it's okay one it's okay that he's feeling this way and also two the thing he's scared about is it's okay there's nothing that he has to be afraid of it's going to be fine um but i wouldn't want to think you should just constantly bring him out or something where it's you know becomes like a uh, a mission to get this out of him because it's not something that i think is going to disappear the way you're describing him and that could be okay yeah okay um I, because we're planning for childcare when he's around two years old so if we notice that he's feeling still almost the same or a little bit less do you reckon that we better wait until it's get like a less and less or we just go ahead and try the child care what do you think well i mean if you're saying the child care is something that makes sense for your family then yeah, go ahead and, you know, he, he might be anxious, he might be, uh, you know, he might figure out his way there, um, but that's okay. You know, a lot of kids who are still have a shy temperament or are more anxious, they can function in a daycare setting. So let me know, what are your options? Is it we don't need to take him, but we want to take him? What's the the options that you're looking at? No, so we, 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 our options are open because I resigned from work since he was born and I have been waiting 
staying with him all the time and we're planning for a second baby. Uh-huh. So, yeah, we're thinking around when he's 24 months, but I think we, we have more time to wait a little bit more. We are not forced to take him to the child care. Okay. Well, and even still, though, I think, you know, based on what you were saying about should we, you know, give him more opportunities to be around people, I think that could be good for him. Of course, having the second child will do that in its own way, but, you know, will be much smaller than him, so it'll be a different experience. But I don't think it's a bad thing to put him somewhere where he's around other kids, and he might be a bit uncomfortable, but that could be okay. We, we have to gauge it. If we see he's so overwhelmed and he really you know, can't take it, then no, don't force him to. But, um, you know, having him exposed to other kids where he has those experiences, I think is, is a good thing. So for him to play and see, and, and as I said, it maybe his temperament is just this way. And I, you know, I mentioned that a few times, his temperament, how do you see him in general? Do you see him as a bit more anxious and fussy or when he was, was little or? No, he's, no. he's not fussy at all. As, as I said, like he's sleeping is great. He's eating. He's not fussy about eating. He mm-hmm. eats very well when he's hungry, or when the daddy take him for shower. He's very happy, very chill most of the time. When I take him to the park, when it's only me and him, he, he doesn't have like, separation anxiety because mm-hmm. I have been with him all the time. Like in the home, he's very happy playing. The only thing that I see him uncomfortable is around other people and when they come very close to him. If they're staying with distance and playing with him, even a lap, he enjoys. Even when I take him to the, like, for example, shopping center, he's very interested in people. He stand up and just stare on people. And as soon as they say hello to him, he just run away. <laughs> you know, yeah, the only time that he just very panicked with someone come very close to him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. it could be. And, you know, you're saying with everyone other than you and, and his father, but are there any other, let's say, family or friends that, he is very comfortable with or is it with everyone else mm, uh, almost everyone so i've got two very close friends that sometimes i try to see them more he gets a little bit like if we are with them like for three hours at the end of the three hours he gets a little bit better mm-hmm. a little bit better but not i can't say oh he can okay. go and play with them or have a color yeah. no just a little bit better but yeah but it's still there well you know and something in, in what you said of course keeping the stability and things is very good but you said that you're always by his side which you know maybe it could be good if he gets some of these exposures away from you um to see that he's okay and handling them so that's also something to consider not i'm saying for long periods of time for kids you know even a few minutes can be a long time but that might be good to show him he can be without you you know he can soothe himself or manage himself away from you yeah he cries like yeah. i can see when we were in the playground with my friend and i was sitting right distance and my friend tried to talk to him and then all of a sudden he started crying because i wasn't very close to him so mm. and i thought oh, maybe i need to just have him and just soothe him so yeah he cries yeah in that situation. Mm. and so you know that's this is kind of one of the the challenges with uh, even as adults, but when we're dealing with a child who, if we're looking at some anxiety, we always have to find this fine line between pushing them into the discomfort so they can see that the thing they're anxious about or scared of is not so bad, but also not overwhelming them because then they might get more scared. And so as his mom, I know you obviously don't want him to be sad or not okay. And we're trying to find a way of letting him experience some of those discomforts in ways that he can tolerate to then learn that he can 
handle that, you know? So um, it's something to just for you to also be aware of that it's okay if he's a little bit, you know, not comfortable with it. You can soothe him, support him, but give him some space in in seeing that he's okay without you, you know? And um, yeah. that will take some time. And then, of course, then when you have the second child, you'll likely have to experience that even more in different ways because you will be, uh, you know, preoccupied or have to put a lot of effort there. Or a lot of effort will be put onto the younger child. So that's something I would, you know, think about. And just tell me about you and, and your husband as far as your own anxiety or temperaments. What are they like? Yeah, as you know, we all be Iranian. We all have <laughs> some sort of anxiety. Yeah. yeah. And because even we like moved to Australia from Iran. So, so immigration just put lots of pressure on us. As, sure. You know, and then, yeah, and we've got the family history of anxiety. Yeah. So, so we yeah, should, but, you know, we, yeah, we expect he's going to, yeah. Have, like, Sorry, Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, it, yeah, so then it, we would expect that he's going to have um, some anxiety. And then also, this is, you know, these things that um, one of the parent experiences that people always have is that we have things in ourselves that we maybe have issue with or are still dealing with. And then when we see those same thing in our kids, we can respond to it in different ways because of that. So sometimes, for example, like, it might not be in your case, but if we have anxiety and we don't like it, when we then see it in our kid, we almost want to get it out of them. Like, oh, no, no, I don't want them to be this way because I know it doesn't feel good or it's affected my life in some way. And unconsciously, we do this a lot too. Sometimes we're aware of it, but in an unconscious way as well. So we would expect that if you're saying both you and your husband have anxiety and family history of anxiety, that your child is going to have a more anxious temperament. Now we're trying to help him within that range of where he is to make it optimal but we should expect that it's it's very likely he's going to have that. So we don't want to think that that's something wrong or some kind of cause for concern because what could then happen is that you have anxiety about his anxiety and then that actually makes it worse than if you're calm about his anxiety and accepting of his anxiety, you know? So that's kind of what I was getting out of making him, uh, want to, wanting to make sure we don't make him feel bad is that if we make it feel like, oh, it's not good that he's this way or no, no, don't be so this way. Um, he's going to feel that, and that'll actually hurt him even more than letting him be how he is. So that's just something also for you and your husband to consider your anxiety about his anxiety. Yeah, that's correct. Thanks for your sure. insight. It was really good, <laughs> actually. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. When I feel like, oh, he's going to get upset from other kids, maybe he can see in my face. Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's absolutely correct. Thanks for your sure. reply. Yeah, so I can take him outside as as normal as I do, right? Like in the playground with other kids and exposed. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I, I yeah. my when I you know I talk to a lot of parents, but you know, on on the, on the air, but also just in uh, sessions. And most of the time, most parents are doing it okay, and they we're very worried because we care so much about our kids. And of course, if we're more anxious, then even more, we're going to wonder, am I doing it right? Um, it's probably not going to be. Don't take him out or take him out. What you're doing seems to be fine, and. As I said, it's finding that fine line where it's not being overprotective and we're letting him be out there and exposing him a bit to the things that are uncomfortable, but not overwhelming him. And that's something that I can't tell you, you know, take him out three times a week or two times a week or two times a day. You're going to have to yeah. gauge with him, too, of what he's going through, uh, what he's experiencing and, and doing what makes, you know, makes sense. But, um, yeah, I think the anxiety is is going to be something that he might have some of. And just like you and your husband likely are doing fine in your lives he he can have this anxiety and be okay and it doesn't mean something yeah. is really wrong 
Yeah, I've got another question. Okay. I know that like let me let me stop you there for a second because we we're kind of over a commercial break and I want to give you time to ask that question. So let's go to a commercial break and we'll talk afterwards. Okay. Thank you. Sure, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with a caller. Let's go back to them now. Caller, are you still there? Yeah, thank okay, you. Sure. Yeah, my other question is about having visitors from Iran. Mm -hmm. So since my baby was born, only me and my husband and him at home, and we never had any visitors from overseas. At the moment, we are thinking about bringing my own parents or my in-laws here to stay with us for a few months. But we are not quite sure if it's a good idea. It can like destroy what we've made so far because he's having a good like a routine, like a flexible but very good routine with everything. We let him free to do whatever he wants to do at home. We got rid of all the hazard, and then we try to follow what the doctor Holakui hmm. said about like how we react with our baby, what to say, what not to say. But I know our parents are different. The way they grow up, the way they speak to the babies which I can see they're quite different with us. And mm -hmm. we were thinking if we bring our parents or in-laws here and stay with us for a few months, it can be any like a bad thing or is it like, we are not sure if it's a good idea or not. Can you just give me a thought about that, please? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you're asking if it's a good thing. It's a, like most things, it's not going to be just good or bad. Um, it does disrupt the the stability and the security and the consistency of of the home so we have to be ready for that and even the time and the tension of course getting love from grandparents and those relationships also have value to it as well so you have to be ready for that and if your child is anxious then those things might be even more impactful when you affect the the consistency of what's going on at home and as you said no matter who the the grandparents are they're going to have different views from the parents and often talk and do things differently um, or do things even that you might not like with, with him. So you have to be ready for those things as well. So, I, you know, it goes back to the same kind of question I asked with the, the daycare because um, we have to look at what the options are because if you tell me, well, we have not no choice, but it's happening already. It's like, how do we make the best of it? Uh, but I don't know what the situation is. So in my opinion, it does create some disorder that you have to be ready for how that's going to impact him. Um, there really is no way to have, let's say, two new people in the home and expect nothing is, is going to change. Now, does that mean it's like has to be so damaging to him in a way that um, is really going to hurt him? No, I wouldn't say that either. But it's just some, something to be aware of the different uh, dynamics that will be at play. Yeah, actually, our baby is so our priority so mm -hmm. we don't have to do that actually we think about him first because mm -hmm. he's very young 18 months and we are thinking when he's around two years old but if we know that it can be damaging or it can disrupt his routine or whatever it can happen or especially when they leave he cannot hurt because they're leaving and he can miss them but as I said we haven't made our decision yet we're gonna just see if even a little bit damaged. You don't want that happen, you know, because he's our priority and they can wait. It's not something well, that we have to do it. Yeah. It's a lot to see them, but we want to make sure, because I know that 
like traveling overseas is not a good idea. And when the baby come back, they sleep routine change. They can like have yeah, everything change when they come back because we've tried our best just to follow what we've learned. That's mm-hmm. why we don't want to do something that all of a sudden we destroy. It. Like, you you won't think. you know just also to say you're not gonna you know if you have in laws stay with you for a few months it won't destroy um, something uh, and it does depend on how long we're talking about they're staying and and you know just something in what you know this is always uh, another challenge is we want to be consistent but if we are so rigid in a way in that consistency then it also doesn't help him deal with when things don't go exactly as planned so. Um, not to speak out of both sides of my mouth and saying, you know, it's good and it's bad, but it's just something to be aware of. That's like, we want things to be stable and consistent, but he's also now, as he's getting older, has to be ready to face those things when it's not going to be exactly always the same or the way he wants it or is used to things being. So I'm not against, it depends on how long they're staying. You know, to me, it's not such a like, bad thing. Like yeah. a two months or... It's, I mean, that's a long time. And of course, again, we were talking before about time with kids. That's a long time. I don't see it as something. This is my, you know, even you mentioned my father. I think he, I don't know what his opinion would be. So I can only share with you my own. I don't see that as some huge detrimental thing. Uh, you know, it could also be nice. He creates a relationship with them. And, you know, you said something about, well, he, he might miss them when they leave. Um, and he might. I would never, I wouldn't say don't do it because he might miss them. That's also an experience that can be okay. I don't see it as all bad for for kids to have these kinds of experiences. They're not going to always be forever, and they can still have some kind of interaction. So I wouldn't want it to be like, well, because he might be sad when they go, they can't come. Because that might happen every time, let's say, you know, even if your grand, you know, his grandparents lived in the same city, he might get sad every time you say goodbye to them. It doesn't mean don't go visit them. That's just part of um, life. We have these hellos and goodbyes. So... I don't see it as so detrimental, um, and I understand he's your priority. I think that's wonderful, and that that should be the case. But to me, it's not something I would say definitely don't do it. And I, I maybe it's more helpful for you if I give you something very clear. But to me, it's not so black and white to tell you definitely don't do it, um, or that it has no consequence. Okay. All right. And another question, uh, when our baby was born, we chose a very simple name for him, like a very easy to say, short and simple. So he like, because he's going to Australia, so it's just easy for him to say and the people can mm-hmm. remember his name. name. Um, about his family name, because my husband's family name had two parts and it was very long. And then we always had some difficulty spelling mm-hmm. on the phone people who don't understand very well so we thought oh it's better to just like make it short and only use the second part of his family name so we did that and no problem and then we think about oh when he grow up and he's looking for his identity you know in the future and he sees no one his family name is it any problem with that or is it fine it doesn't even matter i i don't think it's a big deal i don't wouldn't want you to overthink it either way um yeah, I mean, you know, my name is Farid, which is even, you know, it's hard for Americans to actually say that. So I always have to say it a different way. So I know that experience of having a name that isn't easy for the culture that you're in to pronounce. And it, yeah, it does, you know, when you're in school, it doesn't feel great. Again, it's okay. I overcame it, but I can understand you thought about that when picking his first name. Um, but I wouldn't be too worried about it either way. I mean, especially the last name is not something that gets used that much or it's going to affect too much. And the fear that when he's older, he'll feel like he can't find family or relatives. You know, you can 
um, you know, expl- I'm sure by that time explain everything to him and it'll be okay. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. Mm. I mean, I think keeping the name the same as you you and his father, that's nice, whatever. If you all are doing it, then that that's something, you know, as far as other family members, you know, but being one family with the same name, I think that makes sense. Is it the same as what you and his father would have then? Yeah, yeah, his family name, as I said, his um, father's family name has two parts, yeah. you know, and then you choose the second part, which is easier, mm-hmm. and then you skip the first part. We say, oh, we make it short, it's just easy that way for okay. him in the future, like when he goes to school, when they want to find a job, blah, blah. And then we said, oh, was it a good idea at all? We did already. But I don't. I don't know, see. Yeah, I think idea. it's fine. Like I, I. I mean, for me, keeping it that you all have the same name is nice. But I don't think it's anything to worry about too much either mm-hmm. way. That um, you know, yeah. you, explaining it to him, he'll probably will get that. And yeah, um, I know sometimes Persian last names like yeah, it's like two or three names all together it becomes very long. So um, I don't see any issue with that. As you guys felt okay with it, and uh, I don't see him having an issue with it. I can't speak for him, but I don't see it as something negative that will have some kind of impact, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I've got another question. I know it was okay. so many questions. No, sure. And I'm taking your time. No, no problem. Um, yes. So um, um, my baby is very close to his daddy, so they're very close all of the time together on the weekend. So what if if he has to leave for a week and travel overseas? Mm-hmm. Because I've had some babies don't do the thing that they do before or they don't like say the name that they do like when they are far from the loved one for a while. And we were thinking, um, we are not sure if it, it, it can happen for him or it's okay because he, he has been with me all the time. So mm-hmm. I'm his main like a carer and all the time I'm with him. So his dad obviously goes to work, but he needs to go overseas for a week. Okay. And we are thinking about does it cause anything to him? Is is it okay or? Well, I mean, and maybe I missed what you said. You said something like they won't say the name or they won't something like that. I'm not sure if I understood Actually, what you. Actually, were... I, I had a conversation before. Someone telling that when the dad left his baby to work for like a for a few weeks, so they saw a, a change of behavior in the mm-hmm. baby. I would say. Well, you, I mean, you might. I mean, you know, the way you asked it, can it have an impact or, you know, affect him in some way? Of course it can. Uh, I wouldn't be worried about some huge permanent damage. If I would think it would be nice if you can FaceTime and do things while he's away every day mm-hmm. to, you know, oh, let okay. them communicate and, and see each other. It's not the same, of course, but just to keep that. But um, if you're saying he has to go, so we're just trying to figure out how to make it the best possible way. But again, I wouldn't want you to worry too much. My sense from our our conversation is that you care about your child greatly. You want to make sure you do everything that's best for him, um, which is great. But sometimes being so afraid of, is this going to have any negative impact? It's, you know, life is going to have things that impact us negatively. We don't want to choose ones that we can avoid, but it's going to happen. So yeah, he might have an effect when he comes back even. Sometimes he might, we don't know, is he going to be first a little bit upset with the dad or have like some distance with him? It might take some time for him to reconnect with him, but those things get, you know, overcome. So it's possible you'll feel, you'll see that when he comes back, maybe he might run into his arms and be so excited or he might have like a, he might be overwhelmed, a little bit shocked, a little bit surprised, a little bit upset. And so we want to give him that space to reconnect with him in whatever way 
he he chooses or he's feeling to do that. But yeah, you know, I would say if you can, you know, have those FaceTimes and connections and things would be nice. Um, but yeah. I, I wouldn't be uh, so alarmed about it. Oh, thank you very much. Sure. Very helpful. My pleasure. I'm really glad that I made this oh. um, a conversation and this call. Thank you very much for your time. And My your pleasure. I'm, I'm very happy I got to talk to you as well. Uh, best Thanks. wishes to you and your family. Yeah, thank you. Have a great weekend. Sure, Bye. you too. Take care. All right, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, in the news this last week, there were a, a few incidents of someone being wrongfully shot um, and a very uh, one of the bigger ones that got a lot of attention rightfully so was 16 year old Ralph Paul Yarl who was um, accidentally knocked on the wrong door when he was going to pick up his siblings and he's 16 years old himself and he was shot at and from what I saw most recently um, although he was shot multiple times he has survived I hope I'm correct on that um, and I saw a few other stories with a similar theme of, for example, someone opening the car door of a car they thought was their own and getting shot and another incident similar to that. And uh, guns in America, sadly, it's a not a new um, topic to discuss, and but one that, although it's not new, things tend to seem to stay the same as far as things changing or not changing or that nothing seems to change related to the laws and so just some thoughts on that I wanted to um, discuss especially with these wrongful shootings where someone thought there was a threat when there wasn't one um, the culture we have in in our country is very much one of uh, a fear and that you need to protect yourself and to arm yourself even because of these great dangers that are out there and we know that fear is a great motivator um, and unfortunately it's also a great advertiser meaning that you can use fear to um, encourage people to buy things and so we see this very strongly when it comes to guns that there's this uh, constant sense of there's such a big threat out there and there's so much danger out there that you don't you want to be armed don't you want to protect yourself and your family, which uh, on the surface, of course, you want to protect yourself and your family, um, makes sense. And so it's going to appeal to, to many people. But the part that's really unfortunate is that when you use this fear tactic, you put into people's mind that the world is much more dangerous than it actually is. Um, and not only that, even what we see is that people having guns uh, nothing is going to be 100% of the time, but we do see that it tends to harm them more than help them. I say that because I'm sure and there are instances where it's protected people and helped them. But the statistics that I've seen are showing that when you have a gun in the home, you're more likely to have it used against someone in the home rather than someone outside. So it's not even that you're actually protecting yourself. It's giving you the sense that you are um, or maybe the security internally but not the actually external security and protection that you think it's giving you. But so I, I see this where people share um, videos of some kind of crime or some incident, uh, and even things like all these um, podcasts, shows, documentaries on serial killers that 
make us think that the world is more dangerous than it is. And I'm, of course, it does depend on where you live, and there's lots of factors. But overall, there's a sense of making the world seem more dangerous than it is. Even I've seen this with people, both personally and even with clients that watch a lot of these crime documentaries or shows, and uh, you know, get sucked in, and they become very popular. So they're quite interesting. I haven't really seen many of them. I've seen a few documentaries on serial killers, um, like Ted Bundy and others, but um, it does give you the sense that there's just killers everywhere. They're just right around the corner and you always have to look out for them. Because if we see something, hear something enough, we think it's more common. It makes sense. Our brain is just going to make that conclusion. We call this the availability heuristic. So if you see lots of stories about plane crashes, even though it's one plane out of whatever many, it makes you feel like plane crashes are really common or it could be about to happen. And so you're on a plane and feel some turbulence and you go, here we go. This is the plane that's going to crash. But we don't really see the full picture. So just like if you um, watch the news and there is that adage, if it bleeds, it leads, meaning that if there's blood or violence, um, people are more likely to pay attention to that news. So they share the story of there was a shooting today. And of course, that is significant news or someone was killed. That is significant news. But if it's all you hear about what happened in your city, it makes it seem like that's the thing that's happening a lot. So I really think this is a unfortunate thing that happens in the United States, around the world probably too, but I see it here, where there is this um, proliferation of these images and vis visuals and ideas that were constantly under threat. Even we saw things like, uh, you know, arming yourself against protesters, whereas almost all the protests were nonviolent um, that have happened. And so this unfortunately does create the mindset that you have to be on alert, be ready, because you got to take your shot. And so that's what we very sadly have seen happen in these instances where people thought there was a threat when there wasn't one. And then having those weapons at our disposal are also costly. So as a human being myself, uh, this is not chat GBT, um, chat GPT. Um, and as a person who's interacted with people, I know that we are not rational all the time, rational types of beings, meaning that we make great decisions, great judgments. We are affected by our emotions and our feelings. I think feelings are very good things, but of course they can also lead us to take actions that we will very quickly regret and feel bad about. And so if we give people access to weapons or anything that causes great damage and destruction, unfortunately, people will use it when they almost definitely shouldn't have used it. So if we gave everyone nuclear bombs, we would hear stories of someone set off their nuclear bomb because they got so mad at someone else or something happened. It's the amount of force that we have. And I even think of it in the sense of the amount of inequality of force that we can have is an issue. So no one should be able to have so much force in, in some way. And so when we have these weapons that people can easily buy. And in the United States, there is this almost feeling of a sacred right to a gun. Um, I think that's the issue I have with it. I can understand the principle of a right to bear arms as it was put forward in the Constitution. 250 plus 
years ago or however I guess it's close to 250 years ago um, that I can understand but it's a very different meaning than this sense that it's now become of everyone should have a right to have a gun if they wanted and if they want to have a gun that you can never tell them they can't or that even to check it in any way uh, background check or limit what people can have is a infringement on someone's freedoms um, there's essentially no right that we have that is unimpeded you can drive but you have to have a license and do so many things to get that license and you can lose that license and now you can't drive uh, voting you can lose in different ways or different rights that we have they're not something that are um, something we can never get rid of but it's really sad that we see a confluence of factors including uh, the capitalistic aspect of things so there's a lot of money to be made selling guns and so it's going to be pushed that we we need them and there's a right for them and to to challenge that in any way is, is anti-american and i really find that heartbreaking because we, we see the impact it has and sadly another thing we see happening with guns in america uh, i think of course the number of guns impacts largely the number of shootings we see in the deaths caused by guns i also think that unfortunately it's become part of american culture that when you feel um, a certain way or when you're experiencing something one of the options that you can think of um, is to to shoot up a place or to have to do a shooting so if you're a disgruntled male and you're upset it's one of the things that has become part of the cultural apparatus as in something that you may consider i don't know how you know it takes time to get rid of that i don't think it's unrelated to the guns but i do think there's something on top of um, the guns and how we view what you what you do and i think that's also related to this american type of mindset of if you don't like something then by force you can get what you want or to take it in some way and you're you're right if you can take it by force that's that's enough even though it's illegal and if people do it in certain ways we won't like it but there is still this sense of a american possibility that if you take it by force it's now yours and so if you don't like a situation you can respond with violence or aggression and that can somehow be justified or maybe even the right way to do things uh, but i don't want to get away from the gun issue itself and come up with other issues or blame it on other things because i see that happen a lot in the media where um, we blame other things for gun violence and of course mental health is related to it but we know that every country has mental health issues america doesn't have uh, significantly more mental health issues than other countries we do actually a poor job treating mental health so that has some impact but very very minimal to my estimation when we look at what's happening with the number of shootings that we have here compared to other countries to say it's a mental health problem is missing the point and it's trying to bring up another issue of course i'm very passionate about putting more resources reducing the stigma doing so much to um, direct our attention our time and energy towards mental health but it's kind of like saying well if we're sad about something what about kids that are starving or something and then taking the attention away from some problem that you're looking at 
at, at the moment. So um, mental health is an issue and something we need to focus on, but we can't think of that as the cause of, uh, of gun violence. Guns are the cause of gun violence, and that's um, what we need to look at. And I, it's sad that in my time doing the show, I remember, I can't remember what was the first shooting, mass shooting that took place, but I remember talking about it and being very sad and then it just kept happening. And so um, I missed and didn't talk about so many of them because so many happened in the United States and talked about several of the big ones that did happen. Um, But unfortunately, it's become part of our American experience. And I think to change it will definitely take some time but it's not that time heals everything. Action during that time heals things. So I hope action will be taken and first and foremost looking at at guns, but it's going to take a long time for that to happen. So it's very sad. I'm sure some of you have seen um, these stories that I'm talking about, really heartbreaking, but I do hope that we look at them not as just something to send thoughts and prayers to, but that action will be taken by those that have the power to and they won't be concerned about um, whose pockets they're in, but we'll do the right thing. All right, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So um, changing topics a bit. Um, in a way, it's related, but not so much. But looking at our, our sense of empathy, we often um, talk about teaching children teaching ourselves and looking at empathy, feeling for others, caring about others' feelings. And I do think that it's something that's lacking in the world at times. Um, And one of the ways I've talked about how I think it's demonstrating itself or one of the things contributing to it is that when we look at things like social media, when we are being uh, viewed by others or our focus is some audience, some um, audience out there, it affects how we interact with the people we are face to face with. So I see this a lot, really in all ages, but I think I see it more in the younger generation, where maybe in general, they're doing that anyway, each younger generation, but um, where they'll hurt someone around them, or they won't care about someone who's around them, in order to make a video or capture something that then might get a lot of attention and give them a lot of attention online. I think that's really, really unfortunate. So, you know, these prank type of videos or teasing someone or bothering someone um, and then putting it online and, and getting attention. I see a lot of that. And I think it's it's not a good thing because you can even you feel it that the person is interacting with someone, but they're not interacting with them because in their mind they're thinking of who's seeing this. And this happens anyway. I think it's something we you know, if you're on camera, people always act different. This is kind of one of the, the issues we have where if someone is being seen, we know that that's going to affect how they respond. So how genuine it is, authentic it is, even in a personal interaction, but then when that's magnified, if it's on camera or being put on social media. So I do think this is a huge issue of empathy and teaching empathy. It's not a, uh, a verbal thing. It's something you have to demonstrate. So as Let's say parents, if you want your children to be empathic, you have to demonstrate to them yourself being empathic, even for them, showing them you care about their feelings, showing them you care about people around you and what's going on or what who you're interacting with. But I did want to look at the other side of things. You know, we almost in any 
human characteristic or uh, topic that we look at uh, individuals and their personalities, we can have a whole range of things from not caring enough. And we see a lot of that. And so even if we think of psychological type of characteristics, individuals, for example, who are narcissistic, they are very much focused on themselves. And that's a very stereotypical one of someone who lacks empathy. So someone who is a narcissist tends to not be a good person to be in a relationship with because the focus will be on them. And people who actually are with narcissists often it's because through them they might feel something good, feel secure, feel safe, feel that they are themselves strong if they're merging with this strong individual. But what they tend to learn over time is that they are themselves not seen by that person. It is about them, not about um, you. So um, they are notorious for not having empathy and lacking empathy. It's part of looking at a diagnosis of it or that characteristic. But it's not the only type of psychological character um, where empathy is an issue. Uh, many can experience that. And we also can look at different types of empathy. For example, a psychological empathy understanding of it, which some people can lack or have, but also the emotional actually feeling of it. And that can affect how people are with others. So there's, there's definitely a range of this and there's one extreme where people lack empathy. But what I also wanted to focus on is the other extreme where for some people they might have what we can call too much empathy. And usually, you know, empathy seems like a good thing, so it doesn't make you have too much of it. But what I mean by here is that if someone who is very narcissistic only sees and feels their feelings, their perspective on things. Someone on that other extreme might do the opposite where they don't see their own feelings and they only see the ones of others or they're more focused on them. I shouldn't say it's so black and white, but they're overly focused on other people's feelings to a case that is too much. So the way I illustrate this is when we talk about empathy, we talk about putting ourselves in someone else's shoes. Um, and really, when we do that, putting ourselves in someone else's shoes, we have to imagine what it's like for them to be in their shoes. Because sometimes if we think of us, it's our experience might be different. But if we try to understand what they're experiencing, so it's being them in their shoes. But what I see with some people is that their issue is not having a hard time putting themselves in other people's shoes. Their issue is staying in their own shoes, their own experience. And so rather than in an interaction being aware of what they want and their own feelings, they can be too preoccupied, have in that way too much empathy thinking about others, which is not going to be good for them and not good for relationships either. And so if we look at what might lead someone on, on this side of the spectrum, of course, it's not going to be one type of cause, but a general dynamic that they might have experienced is the parents not being able to make their feelings important enough or putting it another way the parents having so much of their own emotional baggage or emotional things that were going on um, within the home that those feelings became more important and the child learned that in order to keep the peace i have to keep an eye on their feelings and make sure they are okay and we can get this because um, the parents anger or rage or sadness can have a much deeper impact because they're bigger and they're the heads of the household than the child. So 
it could be much more destructive or could have much bigger of an impact. So if we're trying to keep the peace, their feelings have more sway over peace being there or not being there. And um, a book definitely on this theme that illustrates these types of points really well is Alice Miller's book, The Drama of the Gifted Child. Um, and so I, I really, really love that book, read it a few times. And the first time I read it, I thought it was so insightful and really opened my eyes to many things. Um, but in that book, when we say a gifted child, it doesn't mean a child that's a musical prodigy or really good at math, but these children are gifted in their ability to pick up on other people's feelings, what we also can call a sensitive child. And so because of that, if you pair a, a sensitive child gifted in this way with a parent that is having a hard time dealing with their own emotions and having emotional instability, the child can learn that it's safer to be focused on the parent's feelings and that way we might talk about a parentified child because they're parenting the child making a, or, or parenting their own parents um, they feel that they have to and this is unconscious take care of them to make sure they're okay so there is a sense when at the end of the day it's for them but it's through others that they get their peace as long as you're okay then I can feel okay because things feel calm um, and in that book, she does a great job explaining how this then leads to the child disowning their own feelings. Because if you have to make sure that the household is okay and that the parents are okay, your focus becomes on them and how they're feeling, not you and how you're feeling. That becomes less significant. What I'm going through is not important. I have to make sure there is peace, which then eventually will give me peace, but I have to let go of my own feelings or a desire, or if I have a preference, if I think it might, let's say, lead to conflict or might lead to upsetting um, one or both of my parents, that's not safe. So they start to detach themselves from it. And when I say all of this happens unconsciously, that can make it seem like it's some mystical thing or somehow it's deeper uh, or, or it's hard to understand. But really what I mean is that we're drawn towards something that gives us comfort or peace without realizing it. So it's not that the child says, you know what, when my mom gets mad or my dad gets really sad, it really makes things not good. So I'm not going to think about what I want. I'm going to go take care of them and make sure they're okay. It just happens in that way naturally or organically where they tend to do that thing and it makes them feel better and it reinforces that to the point where they don't even realize uh, they're doing it. And so this individual who lives in this type of household or experiences this emotional experience growing up will start to learn that their own feelings won't matter to the point where they won't be in touch with them. And so as they get older, they won't even realize in the moment that they are upset or they're not happy. And this is also related to things like what we might call being a people pleaser or someone who is overly nice, where the focus is on making sure others are okay without even being aware of how you feel. Uh, I've heard a lot of people that will say they're so easygoing. They don't really care about some things. And of course, some people will be more easygoing than others. But sometimes an individual who describes themselves as easygoing, it's not that they don't care or don't have preferences about things that come up, but that they feel more comfortable not 
asking for things or bringing their own feelings or wants into a situation because that feels better for them because it feels more comfortable. So if they were by themselves and they had a choice, they might make a choice or have a strong preference or realize what they want. But when they're around others, all of a sudden it seems like they, they don't care. They're very easygoing. And really they might feel that way in the moment. It's only over time that they might recognize a resentment that builds when they're always doing what others want or in a repeated relationship where they start to recognize that they don't feel good, that the other person is always getting their way, not recognizing that they've helped create this pattern. The person to take it from them, they've given them that type of um, authority or that type of uh, position in the relationship. So for these individuals, what can be very difficult is recognizing that first of all that they have these feelings and to feel them more in the moment often they might feel it afterwards they they go home and all of a sudden realize like oh i didn't feel good about what this person said or i didn't feel good about doing this or not doing this um, in the moment they might not have felt it they felt it when they got home or maybe it takes them even longer than that so they first have to be even aware of those feelings that there are that are there but then comes the very hard part that they have to then stay in their own shoes in the moment when they're interacting with others, which will feel very risky for them. You know, most psychological issues that we have or things we're working on, they're very easy on the surface. And if someone wants to just give you advice, like, well, just say what you feel, tell people what you think. Or if you're drinking too much, stop drinking. Or if you're having a hard time studying and procrastinating, just do the work. So on the surface, it always is easy to say the advice or the solution but actually executing it and doing it um, to help someone, we have to first understand what they're going through, what makes it difficult to do the thing that they're not doing or to stop doing the thing that they keep doing. So in this case, for these individuals, if their whole life they've experienced that it's not safe to feel their feelings or that it's better for them and they got reinforced both by the peace they created but also often explicitly or implicitly by those people that they did their bidding. So people say, oh, that was so good. Thank you for, you know, doing it this way or thank you for letting me do this. And so they get this reinforcement. It could be very scary to then break that and now, let's say, disagree with someone or challenge them or not do what they want or say something that might make them upset and risk that. And even as I say that, it might not sound like a big deal, but it can feel like a very scary thing that by saying this, the person might get very angry and that could be scary. Or by saying this, I might lose the relationship. And ultimately at the bottom of a lot of these types of feelings is this fear of loss, fear of losing the relationship. And so individuals who feel this way will often feel that their relationships will only work insofar as they are making the other person feel good and not making them feel bad that if the person is happy, they'll stay with them. But if they ever make them upset, they're gone. They're going to go. And so it's this fear of abandonment that is pushing them towards keeping everything okay because the fear is that if it's not okay even for a, a brief time, there goes the relationship. So it could be easy to tell someone just feel what you're feeling and express it, but we want to recognize how scary it is for that person to do so. And unfortunately that they've learned or they think the truth is that no one will want their 
quote unquote bad feelings or no one will want them to disagree or to be difficult or to make things complicated by having their own feelings. But hopefully over time they can recognize the reality that the people who care about them or genuinely care about them will and that they can only have a genuine relationship once they do. Because people pleasers, although it sounds like a nice thing, it's difficult to be in a relationship with them because you don't know where they are at. You don't know if they're unhappy because they won't tell you, or you won't know if they like what you're doing because you don't know if they'll tell you if they're upset with it or don't like it in some way. And so it makes you as an individual, either you can just not care and go forward, and some people might do that, or you might feel almost on edge trying to understand what is this person actually feeling because I don't think they will tell me. So unfortunately, the people pleaser thinks that this role of always saying yes and always being nice and um, being easygoing and never disagreeing, it seems like such a positive thing because look, they're all good things, but they don't realize that it's making it harder for people to actually be in relationships with them. So the thing they're doing that they think saves their relationships is actually preventing any of their relationships from becoming very genuine or deep. And so that could itself become a self-fulfilling prophecy that people go, not because um, you ever made them sad or upset them, but that you were afraid so much to make them sad or upset them that you didn't let them actually connect with you and for you to connect with them. So if you're hearing this, you might want to ask yourself where you think you are on that scale. And sometimes we might not be good at judging it. Are you someone who is always in your own shoes and has a hard time putting yourself in other people's shoes? Or are you on the other end of the spectrum where you are too much in other people's shoes and you have a hard time staying in your own shoes and recognizing your own feelings, your own thoughts and what you're going through? And of course, most people fall somewhere in between, but it could be something just to to think about. Also to think about if you're in a relationship, how that person is as well. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello, doctor. Hi, thanks for calling. Uh, I just wanted to consult you uh, on a situation that myself and my girlfriend, we are both single parents, and mm-hmm. uh, we know each other, we've known each other for two years now, and I have two sons, uh, ages 10 and 12, and she also has a son that's 13, so one year older than my older son. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or sorry, 14, so two years older. Okay. Yeah, so um, we are wondering about moving together after this two years now and uh, the challenges, you know, for the blended family and we understand all those things. But we wanted to know your opinion and if you have questions to ask me in regards sure. to our relationship, I can answer. And okay. Well, I'm going to get some answers from you and see. Okay. Whether we should move. Uh, we we live in two different cities, kind of forty five minutes away from each other. Yeah, I mean, so that that's also one one element of it. So I don't know who would be moving, and then which kid or kids would have to 
probably change schools or things of that sort. Um, it, yeah, we're yeah. we're thinking that they move to my. The, it's it's much easier that way because they're um, they're. Dad of um, my girlfriend's son is not in the picture anymore, but uh, but my sons um, have their mom, which is in that close city also. Mm-hmm. So I can't really change our city because okay. of our agreements that we have. Yeah, um, and then is there? And my boys are also. I should mention this too. Also, that my boys are going one week with their mom and one week there with me at the okay. time. I see. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the other parents in the picture are, are one aspect to, to be aware of in this. And then is there a plan to get engaged or married or anything like that, or is that not? Uh, yes, eventually, yeah. yes. Okay. Um, we get along pretty good. It's just a problem that we feel with the kids, whether we should wait a couple of years until her son is out of school and finish high school at least or see if he's gonna go to university in a dorm or something and then she moves in with me more freely or whether we should risk all the challenges now and do it at once now because we feel like we have also a lot of traveling and costs also involved with having two different households mm-hmm. But also, we, we know that there's going to be challenges, like yeah. his son has to move, and it's going to be that the problem of he's losing his friends. Um, he's going to start fresh with high school, so he's not going in the middle of um, his middle school or anything, but still, you know, there's always a challenge of, of course. losing some friends and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Did I hear you right? You said it's like 25 minutes away? The where? Uh, 45 sorry. 45 okay um yeah which is you know not um so far but yeah it does obviously affect things like seeing people regularly and easily uh especially before they can drive themselves so that yeah that is a challenge i mean it's going to be tough how are how are the um relationships between you let's say and him and her and your sons and do you guys spend time together or what's that been like yeah it's pretty good um we see um like I see uh, her son weekly, kind of on the weekend. Mm-hmm. He is usually with his friends and he's busy. But uh, anytime I see him, you know, it's pretty good, friendly relationship. Not very close, as you can imagine. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not really in the picture for him to be that close. I don't think, and I don't know if it's ever going to be that way. But I, I try, and we're good. We're friendly, and. Same with her and my son. She's very friendly with my son also. Um, we do things like picnics. We go out. We play. We date. The boys play with each other pretty good. Um, but yeah, again, I if this is only once a week kind of thing for them, we have no idea how is it going to be when they live in one household. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, the challenges between them. Sure. Even two brothers sometimes have issues being territorial and both, you know, different rooms, yeah. rooms and everything else. So we, we are thinking a lot of challenges. One of them is like, my boys are not um, with me for one week and they're with me another weekend. And then my girlfriend's son will be with us the whole time. So mm-hmm. it could be also jealousy between them and why why 
why are we not seeing our dad every weekend? And he is with them, so I don't know. There's a lot we think about. I don't know if you're overthinking or uh, is it actually legit to think this deep? I mean, yeah, I think it's um, there's going to be challenges for sure, and I don't think you're necessarily overthinking because those things will will come up. Um, and, you know, there are going to be a lot of things you'll have to figure out with your kids. Well, well let me ask you this first. Have, have either of you talked to your kids about this possibility? Um, not so far okay. because we wanted to be sure, sure. ourselves. Like, she had um, spoke a little bit with her son just to see um, how he's going to accept. And he wasn't very happy to begin with with the move and with all his friends and not going to the school that his friends are going to go. Um, but then they, there was no further talk. But she, she said she can convince him, but at the same time, I know when you convince someone, there's always a challenge of if they're not happy of for course. any small reason, even uh, it backflashes at you, and there could be some issues, right? So. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, he would be, we don't want him to feel, the more he's going to feel forced, and he probably won't like it, and I know you said it's like not in the middle of middle school, but going to high school is, is tough when you don't know anyone or everyone already knows people. So even if it's uh, a new school, people already know each other if they're in that same district. So it, it is going to be tough. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't mean don't do it. I think that the fa and when you say the father's on the picture, what do you mean by that? Uh, he, he he's in Iran and they left. Uh, okay. They're here, so um, we're in Canada, by the way. So okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, so he never moved with them, and then they got separated and divorced. And he's not having any interest into taking any responsibility for his son anymore. And she took the whole responsibility and, and uh, custody and everything. Okay. Well, I mean, I think um, talking to the kids, you know, she already did. You can bring it up with your kids too, just as a possibility. I mean, likely they're going to not like it initially and so i know you were just talking about convincing and it's not just i want you to convince them or persuade them but um likely it's gonna have to be several conversations to talk about this process so if you're thinking about it seriously i don't i don't think it's completely um out of the regard out of like the realm of possibilities of something that can work especially if you're considering you're going to get married and you don't have to that's uh, um, some traditional types of mindsets about that so you don't have to but if that's where you're going that you and her want to make the relationship that way where it's a type of perm like a commitment that's more serious um, it, it can make sense but yeah it's going to be challenging and you have to be ready for that you know uh, step parents even let's say you're not married but let's just call it that it's a very complicated thing because you know you're gonna have to make rules for the home um, and in, in a way you're not his dad or her son's dad but you're going to be one of the authority figures in the home and vice versa. And those things can be challenging. Then, of course, your, uh, you know, your, ki your kids have their mom and whatever rules they have there. So there's a lot of things that you're going to have to deal with as you're recognizing. So that's why when you say overthinking it, um, I don't want you to necessarily think that because there is a lot for you to, to consider. It's not just going to be this easy thing. And so as much as you might like to live with your, your girlfriend as you're both getting closer and there's financial ways that it'll be easier to have one household. We just be ready for big challenges that you, you're going to be facing 
with with all sorts of things and really it's going to have to be a lot of communication between you and her but then also with the kids to make sure you know they feel okay and and having that uh, empathy that is going to be tough for them you know now living with a new you know adult and then also with a new kid maybe that's fun they can play but it's 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 a lot and then you're gonna have three almost teenagers in the home that's that's a lot too they do have fun with each other like when they see each other they play pretty good they had some challenges to begin with and but but now they're pretty good they get along but again we're just going as a guest to their place they come in as a guest to our place so it's kind of like the very different of course scenario than living in one place all yeah. together and everybody should have their own rooms and you know um, issues with um, personal items and who uses the TV or what mm-hmm. channel to watch or where should we go to restaurant or I don't like this food or you know anything like this is my spot on the chair or sofa um, we, we kind of foresee a lot of problems in future, but um, we also have a consultation with um, another um, counselor and uh, family counselor, psychologist, and they suggested, like, with all the challenges possible, we should probably wait till at least um, my girlfriend's son is um, out of home and, like, she can more freely decide what to do and then move um, <clears throat> but I don't know if, if that's going to happen anytime soon or um, obviously kids nowadays you know they get to 16, 17, 18 they, they want to move out and that's a good thing for us to happen but there's no guarantee either yeah well I mean I don't know in Canada but here usually it's like 18 at the earliest um, that they can move out or let's say if they're going to college uh, that's so that's we're saying at least another four years so i i see it as there's definitely going to be difficult but um it doesn't tell me that you shouldn't do it because it's going to be difficult and to say wait four years and you know you wait four years it's still going to be difficult for your kids um to have her come in and i don't know how's that i don't know where her son let's say has moved out at that point which we're looking in the future a lot but I don't know how that's going to affect things, like how he feels about his mom going to another home then, but maybe, you know, he's older. So I, I can't tell you not to do it. I wouldn't say it's not going to have some consequences, but I, I don't see it as you definitely have to wait four years. Um, and then maybe, because, you know, and kids don't, I don't know how it is for their family, but, you know, kids don't necessarily move out at 18 either. So is that going to happen or not? Um that that's something to, to think about. I think if you and her are serious and really want to get married and make it that type of a commitment, then it can be, you know, that's a different type of situation where you're taking it to that level, you know. Um, I think we lost the caller, unfortunately. Um, so we, we we have to wrap up the show in a minute or two anyway. But, you know, these situations are, are tough in a few of the the themes that came up today, it's like, well, is this going to impact um, the kids? And we want to th- keep them in mind and make sure what we do doesn't negatively impact them to a large degree. But um, kids can also handle things. So I'm glad they're meeting or I guess they met with a counselor and that person knew more about what's going on. So it could be important for them to, um, you know, consider the, the situation in more in more detail. Actually, well, actually, let's see if this caller is 
the, the caller. Can we check to see the, if they're back just so I can wrap up with them? We only have a minute or two. Yeah, okay. It is a call. Let's bring him back on. So sorry, we, we lost you there for a minute. Sorry, yes, I got disconnected. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, so you're, you're suggesting there's, uh, you're also agreeing that there's lots of challenges, but you're also um, not suggesting we should for sure wait four years for this if i understand correctly yes yeah i mean that's i mean you know i don't want to give you a green overcome. i don't want to give you a green light you're these things um i know when you're calling there's a sense of like getting a, a answer of what to do but i feel that sometimes i can feel that it, it'll make me feel like i'm i don't know enough yet you know there's so many other factors but just from what you've told me and we do have to wrap up um in maybe a minute or so uh, i wouldn't see it as you have to wait four years it, it would will have a big impact um but on, on them but I, I don't see it that way but i would want to talk more about with them but also with your kids before you do it but for her to really explore it with him more um likely he's going to say you know not like it and not that we want her to wear him down until he says yes but to have conversations yeah. about what it might look like what's going to happen and then yeah if he's really so hell-bent against it that he's going to be so resentful then you know I, I would want you to keep that in mind so my my thought is that i wouldn't say definitely wait four years no matter what um, but i would want you to have lots of conversation with the kids before it happens and not just force them or just you know inform them that it's happening that they would in some way be part of that process so we shouldn't rush it because it's just right before high school like does it yeah i mean matter? that part that's something to think about you know and and i mean right now it's april and like school starts in probably four or five months so there's some time yeah. but you know you have those conversations and yeah moving is not something you just do overnight so it takes some time to make that happen so if you'd want to do that but i'd want her to have more conversations with him and then maybe even you're part of that i do have to wrap up um, the show sure. so we'll have to stop at this point but um, yeah Thank you could you maybe so maybe we'll have a talk another time but nice talking to you really appreciate it my thank pleasure you, take care all right that brings us to the end of today's show big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farhuda Lakwi Zan Zendegi Azadi <laughs>